Hi, my name is Daryl Miller. I, this talk is on tooling for the HTTP Uniform Interface. I work for a company called RunScope. Uh, we build tools for logging, monitoring, and measuring, and sharing of HTTP requests for people who are building web APIs. I was involved in developing, writing the book Evolvable Web APIs with ASP.NET, and I've been a Microsoft MVP for the last four years. You'll find me regularly on Twitter at Daryl underscore Miller, and I blog fairly regularly about all things HTTP on bizcoder.com. This talk is about open source libraries, and for the tools that I create, uh, I tend to keep them under an organization called Tavis Software. It's a corporation that I've worked for for many years, and uh, I also produce samples and demos and things under my Daryl Miller uh, GitHub account, and I also occasionally publish stuff under the RunScope organization. But for the point of this talk, most of what we're going to cover is, lives in the Tavis Software organization. In the past, I've built uh, a large number of, or large, HTTP APIs. And those HTTP APIs, when you're consuming HTTP APIs, uh, there's all kinds of advantages that you can take of the common uniform HTTP interface. And this is tooling that I've built uh, in order to make my life easier. One of the first pains that you start to run into when developing clients is the fact that, well, you need a URI, a URL, in order to make an HTTP request. And uh, in most cases, to access most APIs, you need to construct some kind of URI. URI. And constructing URLs are a pain. They have a very long history, and they have some fairly arcane rules with regards to syntax, with regards to character encoding. So when you're constructing them, there's issues of dealing with trailing slashes and query parameters and escaping delimiters or whether or not things need to be encoded or not. So there are many issues to be dealt with. Several years ago, there was a IETF specification drawn up called uh, URI Templates, it's RFC 6570, and that provides a way of describing a templatized, parameterized URI, and then has a set of rules as to how that template and parameters can be combined into a full URL. I built a library, that's my f the first library on this list is URI templates, and there's there's many libraries in many different languages. Uh, and that's the first one, we're, first library we're gonna take a quick look at. But before we do, uh, let's first look at uh, what URI templates look like. We're going to do this by looking at the RunScope, uh, sorry, the, the GitHub API. Now, I could use Fiddler, I could use Postman, or I could use curl to access this API to show you what these query string parameters look like, or these query URI templates look like. But no, I'm going to use RunScope for obvious reasons. So, if I go into the request editor here and just hit github.com, Go to the root of the document. Now, this is another interesting thing is that I wish more APIs would do is creating an, a home entry point document at the root of the API. So, and we can see here a list of uh, 
resources that are available uh, using URI templates. You can see this first example here has the, the curly braces around the slash client ID. Uh, this indicates that you can optionally specify a client ID if you don't include a value in a for a parameter, it will just drop it. And that's where the slash is included inside the parentheses. See, this is where all of a sudden the just putting, doing simple string replace doesn't work because it's not quite clever enough to include the slash if you have a client ID or not, uh, if you don't have a client ID. Then you can get to more complex examples like this code search where they've sort of indicated in this, this first parameter uh, can be assumed to be a required value, whereas these other ones that are tacked onto the end are kind of optional values. Uh, there's a few other examples. Interesting, you can put parameters directly into the path, into a path segment, uh, so you're not limited to query parameters. And uh, I'll show you a more ridiculous example in just a moment. I'd kind of hope to be able to go through a number of different examples of actually using code to resolve URI templates, but then I realized I can pretty much talk for an hour on uh, just on templates alone. So I quickly found out that I'm going to have to jump right to uh, probably one of the more extreme examples of what you can do with a URI template. So the library is just a Nuka package that you can pull in. And here is an example of a rather silly uh, URI. I took this, the code search example and expanded it a little bit. You can actually put a parameter for the initial base URL uh, and replace that in. In this case, I'm replacing it in with HP colon slash slash api.github.com. Now, what URI template library does is it will automatically escape all of these characters by default because uh, it knows which are delimiter characters and which aren't. So this little operator modifier that appears at the beginning of the, the, the variable indicates don't escape uh, delimiter characters, just pass it through exactly as is. So that allows it to generate a, a URI that is correct. This next uh, example here shows the... Uh, is is a way of allowing you to specify multiple segments with a single parameter. You'll notice folder here is actually a list. You can do more than just pass in simple strings. You can pass in a list of strings. And by using this slash as a prefix and the star as a suffix, which the star is what they call the explode operator, it will actually take each of these values and put each one into its own segment. I have the example of the... Uh, the optional uh, trailing path segment here, uh, which I have not provided a parameter for, which case when we run it, it'll drop it out. And when it comes to query string parameters, you don't actually have to uh, enumerate all of them in the template if you don't want. You can use, again, this explode operator and pass in a dictionary of key value pairs, and it will actually convert this into name value, name value. So if I now run this, It'll just dump it out into, well, not that at all. Okay, let's try this again. Templates, set a startup, run. You'll see we have 
the uh, GitHub API pass-through without uh, escaping. We have home source widgets as three separate segments because it's been exploded. And we don't have a language at the end. And the query equals and sort order equals have been exploded into query parameters. So there, there's an example of a more sophisticated template uh, that you can use. It gives, starts to give you a hint at the power. Of, uh, now, <clears throat> one thing to consider about URI templates is that there are some things it cannot do. Uh, there are some edge cases that just don't work very well just because of the expressiveness of the language. The language, the, the syntax was kept very, very simplistic, specifically so that processing would be quick. You can do a left-to-right traversal through the array of characters and just output the template. There's no regexes that occur in there. It's just a simple character-by-character uh, -character analysis and uh, string copy. I use String Builder to output the result. So it's done very fast. But the downside of that is there are some limitations to it. So even if you, as an API provider, are not going to use URI templates in your responses, it's worth knowing what some of those limitations are in order to um, make sure you don't make arbitrary choices that might constrain your client. Uh, the example uh, I bumped into when preparing this talk is I tried to use Stack Overflow and uh, for URL, and they have an option where when you're doing a search, you can say search in uh, tags equal, a query param. But they allow you to search by multiple tags, but they use semicolon as a delimiter. Well, there isn't an option to be able to use semicolon as a delimiter in the value of a query parameter. You can use comma, but you can't use semicolon out of the box. So it's just silly little things like that. If you know, and, and does it really matter whether you use comma or semicolon? Possibly not. So if you know what those limitations are, you can make uh, choices that your users might be a little bit more happy with. So now we have tools for creating URIs, URLs. Next thing we have to do is create HTTP requests, right? So here's an example of a pretty raw way. We need an HTTP client class. Uh, the HTTP client class is somewhat nicer to use than the old uh, HTTP web request. Thank goodness for that. Um, we're going to be calling the GitHub API. We're going to use this code search uh, example. And uh, I, you need to set the request header uh, to access the GitHub API or it tells you to go away. So um, I created the URL template. I set some of the parameters up to search for all existences of send async by me. Okay, so we're going to run that. And then we call get async. And I'm just going to dump the output to the result. And there we go. We get a big blob of JSON coming out as a result. So the thing is, you know, this is the most simplest case. There's no headers to set specific to the particular request. So there's no authentication headers. There's no... Um, we, have, we don't do any exception handling here, looking at the response. We're not dealing with redirects. We're not dealing with any of that stuff. So this code starts to get bigger and clumsier and more repetitive when you're starting to make lots of different requests. So the general uh, approach that most people take is they build what I like to call a saver service API or a wrapper, right? So we have the same kind of code here as before where we're creating a header. Uh, 
user agent header. And then I pass this HTTP client into this Git API. Let's rename this to be service, Git API service. And now I have this procedural call, git api.search code. And then when, if I go and look in the service, it's the same thing. Like I just basically moved this code. And the encapsulation of this kind of code makes a lot of sense, right? Now, encapsulating this way, it's not always the easiest way to reuse chunks of it because there's going to be chunks of code that appears right after this get async where we're looking into the responses that... Um, it's fairly standardized, so we might pass it off to some reusable procedure. But in general, uh, we are going to end up with uh, a whole bunch of these procedures that exist in this service. And that's fine. That's fine, that is, right up until you're not writing this service anymore. See, what tends to happen is API providers... They want people to use their APIs because an API is used to nobody if nobody's using it. So in order to increase adoption, they've learned that they need to produce this kind of service API and provide that code to consumers of the API. So then when I'm writing an application and I need to access this GitHub API, I'm just going to go and take a dependency on that library provided to me by the API provider. I mean, GitHub has... OctoKit, right? And it would not surprise me if Brendan's sitting in the audience, who's one of the major contributors to, to OctoKit. Now, the problem with that kind of service library is as a client application developer, you are no longer taking a dependency on an HTTP API. You're taking a dependency on a library, a class, a strongly typed class. And you now have all of the constraints and benefits of coupling to a strongly typed library. Now, that may not be a problem for you, but it does bring into the issues of versioning and those kind of areas which start to get a little sticky. And when there's new features that have been made available in the API and they're not yet available for the you know, because the, that li the library of your language of choice, and if the decision all of a sudden has to be made by the service provider, well, how do you want to handle failure conditions? How do you want to auto-follow redirects? Do you want to do retries when you get service unavailable? Those decisions are taken out of your hands. Those decisions are now being made by the service provider. And a lot of the flexibility that enables distributed applications to be resilient lies in how the decisions that are made and the choices that are made in how to handle all of the non-200 response codes. And as long as your vision aligns perfectly with the vision of the service provider, how he thinks that those conditions should be dealt with, you're possibly fine. But that's not always the case. So that brings up the question. How do we maintain a nice abstraction for all this API-specific stuff, like dealing with users and dealing with code and dealing with issues in the case of GitHub API? 
while still maintaining access to the HTTP interaction. Because you'll see here, get API.search code. There's no HTTPisms left there. Right? I get I get a return back of a JSON object, but there's there's just no more HTTP there. So how do we keep access to that? So the answer, I believe, is found by looking at the architecture of the web itself. The web is called the web because the resources on the web are linked together, like strands of a web. Now, a URL is an identifier for a particular link. But there are many URLs that have identical interaction characteristics. I mean, consider slash customer slash Bob and slash customer slash Mary. There are two different URLs, two different identifiers, but we, as a client, we interact with them in exactly the same way. We make the same kind of request, we get the same time of type of response back, and we can interpret the response in very much the same ways. So this allows us to introduce the notion of a link type. Now, interestingly, uh, RFC 5988 is, is a CITF spec which defines the characteristics of this thing called a web link. So I created a library called uh, Tavis link that implements a lot of these characteristics. And there's a base link class in there that can, can be used to derive more specific links in order to enable application functionality, application specific functionality. Now, I've switched over to another sample project here that uses the library that I call GitLinks, which is a set of classes that encapsulate the interactions with the resources in the Git API. Now, I have a number, I've done this on a number of other APIs, but the Git APIs is a nice one for people to actually understand, or most likely to be familiar with. So, the first thing that we do, and we're going to continue with this example of, of accessing code search. We're going to create a new instance of a code search link object. Now, the code search link object has been uh, built so that it has a it has a template parameter which it derives from the base class, and you can add on specific properties that are going to be used to fill in the parameters of the URI template. So in this case, I'm assigning the search to the query property, I've updated the template, and then I'm going to use that code search link as effectively a request factory. I call create request and it gives me a request message. So now I can just pass this into HP client send async and I get a response back. Now, GitHub have done a really nice thing in that all the responses that come back from their API uh, follow a certain set of conventions that they've identified with the GitHub media type. So I, I built a class called a GitHub document that understands a little bit of the rules of how GitHub formats the JSON documents that comes back. And it's able to infer certain things from the structure of the document. The GitHub document still doesn't really have a clue what it is that's in it. It doesn't know whether it's a list of users or a list of issues or a code file. or It, it just has a certain set of rule for uh, including links and rules for... Um, um, lists of things. So 
I have, I'm taking the response and I'm interpreting it as a GitHub document. The next thing I do is then I then, t and I'm getting that, I know that it's a GitHub document. Technically, I know it's a GitHub document from the media type header that is returned. Unfortunately, GitHub do a little bit of a funky thing and they have a custom header for, but that's by the by. Conceptually, the media type that comes back is a GitHub document. In order to know that this GitHub document actually contains search res results, I need to use the context of the fact that I followed a code search link in order to get to that particular resource. So I then take advantage of using that code search link itself to say, okay, now interpret that GitHub document that was returned and return me back specific strongly typed code search results, which then allows me to iterate through the list of code search results and I can get all the specific items. I can get the name, the path and the SHA and, and an actual link to the code file itself. So by Using the link in combination with the content type that's returned, I'm able to extract all the semantics I need in order to be able to do something useful. Now, it's not exactly a short amount of code here. Uh, the, the, there's several steps. We've introduced these extra steps by breaking the request and response, but it does nicely encapsulate the application-specific semantics and still give us complete access to the HTTP request. Because I can go right here and I can manipulate this request message before I send it. I can add new headers, I can change stuff. And in the response, the, the, the parts, the code search link class is making no decisions about how I deal with uh, the response in terms of failure codes. I still have complete control over the HTTP interaction. And now I have this strongly typed list of results back. I can do more stuff with this. I can iterate, I'm gonna search through this list of results and find uh, files that have the name Slack in them and where they actually have a code file link, which is going to be another hypermedia link, another URL to the actual file that contains the word that we were looking for, the piece of code we were looking for. And I'm gonna pull out that list of links and iterate through that list of links. And then I'm going to do what I call a follow link. Now, follow is, it was, it's just a small helper method that does, calls the create request and then calls send async. It also has some little bit of magic for dealing with the responses, which we'll see in a minute. But for the moment, all we're using it for is for sending requests uh, by creating the request and actually uh, calling send async on it. So we get the response back and I do the same thing. I read as a GitHub document, although this is a completely different thing. It's now a file, just a JSON representation of a file, uh, but I, it's still a GitHub document. And then I use the code file link to interpret the response to turn it into this code file. Call it a DTO, call it a message that has been returned from this particular API. And then I can write out that content. So I can run that and you'll see it's not particularly exciting, but you can see it actually does work, that we run it, we get the list of all the files, and then I search those files looking for a file that has the word Slack in it, and then I go off and I go and retrieve that actual uh, source code file from the API. And one of the interesting things here is what we're doing is we're actually allowing us to kind of navigate 
the object graph that has been returned to us from the server, but there's no lifetime issues with regards to the client holding on to links to objects because we're just holding on to those, those file links and we're making requests. If we make, we don't need to hold on to those object references because if we make the, a request to the same link multiple times, hopefully there's some appropriate caching headers been put on there to allow private caching and we can have a caching component on the client side so that when we follow a link but we've already retrieved it a few minutes ago and it's not stale we will just get the response back directly without actually making a network request so we get the kind of object graph uh, convenience but without the problem of oh no we've got an object graph full of data on the client that has become out of sync with the server. So the next example I'm going to show introduces a new part of the library that I've built. Uh, it introduces this notion called a link factory. And uh, we create this link factory and then we register into the link factory all of the links that we understand how that we have and we understand how to process this type of link. So these are all get links that we've currently registered in our, our factory. And now we're going to retrieve a different document. We're going to go up to that home document and we're going to, re you know, in this case, uh, I don't actually need a special link here. I could just use a standard link and I just follow the GitHub API. I don't need to specify template because it's hard-coded. It's just one specific URI. I follow that link and I get back a response. Now, again, the response is a GitHub document. Got it, okay? But this time I pass in this link factory because what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and say, please give me a link. Because although that GitHub document knows very little about all of the application semantics of the GitHub API, it does know the convention for presenting links within uh, a GitHub response. And so by using that knowledge, I can say, go get me the link that corresponds to the code search link, because the code search link has a link relation type, which is just a little identifying string, which it then knows how to find in the document that comes back. And I can return back a link from that document and I can go off and do the same follow link to search so I can do exactly the same thing but this time you'll see here there's no template right I don't need the template because I retrieved the template from the home link so I'm no longer I'm completely dependent on uh, knowing exactly what that template is and if that template changes they add a new parameter it won't affect me or if they move where it is it potentially won't affect uh, my life at all, my code will continue working. The really interesting thing that this ability to um, grab specific links out of generic documents enables is it all of a sudden means that we can start to do mashups much easier because now I can retrieve generic documents from one API that potentially point contain links that point to another API. So all of a sudden, there are no real boundaries between APIs. It's not this service API accesses this API and this service API accesses another API. It's we have a hypermedia document that comes from one place and it could point to links that point to 10 different APIs. And we can still encapsulate all of the interaction semantics inside these link classes.
all the examples that we've seen so far have been fairly se sequential. It's like we make this request, we process this response, we make another request, we process that response. And we've been able to do that despite it being async through to the, the magic of a, the await uh, keyword, right? But reality is the await keyword behind the scenes actually creates a little state machine for managing these requests and responses being occurring at different points in time. Now, it turns out this pattern of a state machine for handling the response is actually a very useful way of working with HTTP, and it's actually worth surfacing that in some scenarios. I coined the, the, the term a mission. Right? So, so this next example shows a code search mission. Right? So we're doing the same kind of thing. We're searching through the API. We have a query and we have this, we're only going to look for files that contain this particular term. So the, the two parameters are passed into the mission and you send the mission off on its merry way. Now, if we dig into this find async mission, you'll see what we do is we'll, we'll store the query and we go off to the home link and we go and we get it because we need to get that template. Hopefully we called it a few minutes early so it's cached and we won't actually have to make a round trip in order to be able to do this. So we get, we get the, uh, we make the request to the home link. Now, interestingly, at this point, we just say, okay, we made the request to the home link. But then what are we going to do now? How do we deal with the results? Well, we apply the results back to a response handler. Now, in this case, the mission itself is acting as a response handler. So we apply the representation back. And this goes back to this term that you will often hear in hypermedia, which is hypermedia as the engine of application state. Right? Our mission is a mini state machine. We're making HTTP requests and applying the response back onto our state machine to effect a state change. So then what happens is when we apply that, re that response back, when the response comes back, we hit this handle response async. And now we have an opportunity in one standard place to handle all the uniform interface requests. We handle all the 300s and 400s and 500s. We look at the content type and we say, oh, this is the content type. I don't care where you called, what URI you called. I'm going to look at the content type and say, okay, this is how to interpret the media type of what is coming back. Ah, oh, look at that. Is it a GitHub document? Yes, it is. It's a GitHub document. Now, okay, well, what link did you follow? Or more specifically, what type of link did you follow? And we just dispatch on that. In the case of, oh, it was a home link that we followed. Okay, well, let's go see what to do. Ah, if it's a home link that we followed, well, then I need the code search link. Okay, I got the code search link. Okay, I'm going to assign the query that I stored earlier. And now I'm going to follow that code search link. And I'm going to take the representation and I'm going to apply it back to this mission. So we go back to the handle response async. And this time it's, oh, yes, we, we go through all the same code all over again. And we say, oh, yes, this time we followed a code search link. Well, let's handle the code search response. Okay, well, when we, we are going to interpret the response based on that code search link, because we know we're following a code search link type of request, we get the search results, we iterate through, we find them all using the this file name filter, this code shouldn't be here, and then we get those results, and then we're going to iterate through those file links, and we're going to follow them again. And 
surprise, surprise, we also have a dispatch for what we do when we get back from a code file. We, we follow the results that we get back from following a code file link. We handle the code file document, in which case we simply interpret it, we take the contents of the code file, and we add it to a piece of state. It's a property uh, on the code search mission. And then we go all the way back to the code that actually called it, our program, you'll see that after we finish the mission, we look in file contents and we write those results out. So that is how you move all that stuff into this notion of a mission. And it becomes very useful the fact that we have separated the request and the response. And now basically whenever we make an HTTP request, it drops down to this one line of code, follow this link and we're done for that side of the equation. For the response handling, we deal with that separately. Up to now, the only media type that we've looked at has been the GitHub document media type that GitHub defines. But the problem is that's only useful for that one API. Wouldn't it be nice if we had media types that could be also be reused across multiple APIs? Well, there are started, there are a number of them that have been created. Uh, take example, the home document. We, I mentioned earlier that the idea of a, a discovery document is a really good idea, and that's what GitHub does, but they, they've defined their own style of uh, discovery document. There is a one in the process of being standardized, and if I go to another API that uh, I work have worked on and used for demos, it's kind of a conference API, and uh, it allows you to look at the topics and the speakers and the sessions in a particular uh, conference. And it's a JSON format, but it has the ability to add a bunch of hints that tell you how to call those particular URLs as well as just listing the URLs for the, uh, for the um, resources. But in order to process that, well, it's a different media type. So here's an example. I, I make a request. I, here I'm just using a generic link. Uh, object a base link object and I follow that link and I get a response back but then I read that response back and I feed it into this thing called a home document now a home document ends up exposing a set of resources and that I can then iterate through and now if I run that I can display these are the uh, URIs and URI templates that are available in the home document for this particular API. Another nice generic one is, is problem document. So this is currently being, uh, I think it should be standardized very, very soon. Uh, the idea is it's a way of returning an error message from uh, a particular API. So if you, if I take that request here, and oh that that, told me request that template, and I were to plug it into a browser, I don't know what will happen here in a browser, because uh, I'm going to say day number ten. Well, this conference doesn't have ten days, so it returns actually a 400, and it returns this little uh, response body that says this is the type of uh, error it is, and this is a message explaining to you what the problem is. So in here, I have this strongly typed class, which is called, she's called, oh, it, it's called a problem. And I have a read as problem, async, and that returns a problem doc document. And then I have type, 
title and problem type that uh, I can return. The nice thing about problem type is actually a URI, so you could actually make that a resource that you could dereference and get HTML documentation from it. And here's another example. Now, this is not a, a media type that I, a parser that I created. It's one actually Glenn Block created for parsing collection plus JSON. Collection plus JSON is a media type specifically designed for processing lists of things. And the speakers, the list of speakers that I return from this API come back as uh, a collection plus JSON document, which then gives me an items collection to iterate through. And each item has a data property, which is just a set of key value pairs. And uh, so now I can iterate through that one very simply. And when I pull that back, you will see if I didn't have the breakpoint on here. Uh, there you go, there's the list of speakers who spoke at this particular conference where I scraped the data for. And if I return back to the slide that shows the projects that I have been working on, you'll notice I have a number of others. HAL is another uh, hypermedia format that has a document type object, so you can do read as HAL document. Uh, JSON patch is another format that's used primarily for sending. If you want to make a partial update, you can send a patch document uh, using JSON to an, an endpoint to be able to remove or add or modify a JSON document in some way. I played around with another media type called status, which is useful for uh, long-running operations where you want to uh, submit a request for something to happen. You get a 202 back, and the 202 says it's accepted, it's ongoing, and in the location header, it should point to you to what they refer to as a monitoring resource in order to be able to monitor where we're up to. The problem is that the, the, the body that is returned in a monitoring resource is not defined. So Tavis status is, has, is a standard, is, is a standard I defined uh, that allows me to say, okay, well, here's some kind of progress description, and this is where we're up to in the process. We're up to one of 75 or two of 45, that kind of uh, progress, so that you can give feedback. A client can continue polling that monitoring resource and displaying some information to the user. And then when it completes, a new link will appear in that status document that you can then follow in order to get the final result.